We're in the book of 1 Peter today, and we're going to be studying this passage. It is from 1 Peter chapter 1, a passage that we looked at briefly a few months ago, but I want to go to today and look at it as kind of a Christmas springboard meditation. It is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, and that passage should be in your worship guide. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, Christ, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Today the theme is Advent joy. In the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament, the children of Israel have been in the captivity the Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience to the Lord. The Lord brings them back. Ezra and Nehemiah are twin books, and so they, they build the wall around the holy city, Jerusalem. And as they built most of the wall, there's a great convocation of worship where they stand up, the scribes stand up on a raised platform, and they read the law of God to the people. And as the people hear the law of God and the blessings that come with obedience and the judgment that comes with disobedience, they realize what they've done and what their forefathers have done. And so we pick up the statement in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, listen to verses 9 and 12. Twelve. It says that, that then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go to your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, don't weep because this day is holy, don't be grieved. And in other words, don't grieve because the Lord has made a way to have full fellowship with him by returning you to the land and giving you the sacrificial system. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that sentiment is echoed in Luke 2 that we heard read from our cross-cultural workers earlier. Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord said this before an angelic host burst on the scene. This is good news of great joy which shall be for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. His name is Christ the Lord. Good news, great joy. So, joy. First Peter, even though you haven't seen him, none of the people that Peter's writing to it had seen Christ in his earthly ministry. They were scattered all over Asia Minor. And even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you haven't, don't see him now, you, you, you love him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Let me give you a definition for joy, a brief stab at it. Joy is the settled assurance, settled assurance, that I am entirely loved by the triune God, protected by his might, and I have an unshakable inheritance of wonder that awaits me in the presence of the Lamb who was slain 
for my sin in heaven. Joy, the settled assurance. And, and so let me give you the thesis of where I'm going. I, I, want you, I want us to really think about this passage and use it as a mirror. And ask, I ask you, as I've been asking myself this, do you have a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory? Though we haven't seen him, we love him. And we love him, and we have a joy that's inexpressible and is full of glory. Use this as a, as a mirror for your soul. And my purpose is to go to this text and to stir us up, who are believers in Jesus, to stir us up with a passionate joy in Christ that is inexpressible in many ways and is full of glory. This, this joy that comes from the Lord in uh, Second Peter, Peter writes this. He says, I, I'm, I'm, the purpose of my writing is, is this. He says, verses 12 and 13, he says, I, I, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, this growth and grace, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long I am, as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder Stir you up. So, so, so I, I want to stir us up by way of reminder as we understand, rehearse, and think through the great things that the Lord has done for us. So I believe that as these truths that are in First Peter chapter 1 are part of the fabric of our lives and as we rehearse them, then we will have joy, love, and hope. Behold the greatness, mercy, and grandeur of the living God. Behold it. I want you to see it this morning on this December 22nd, 2019. So what leads to this joy? Number one, I realize as a believer you realize that you are eternally loved in the embrace of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 1 says that we are elect exiles. God's worked in our lives. We're elect exiles, and he says this, as elect exiles, we have been, verse 2, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been the agents of my eternal security and my salvation. This is good news of great joy. In Psalm 139, the Old Testament, the psalmist is celebrating the creative mercy of God and the fact that God is unchanging and God is everywhere present. And so he, he says this with joy, not with sorrow. He says in verse 10, he says, if I, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You're everywhere. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light above me will be night. He says, even in the darkness. It's not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day to you, for darkness is light to you. You're all knowing. You're everywhere present. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he, says, I, I, I can't, he says, I can't get over the grandeur and the majesty of God. And then he says in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them if I could count them. 
They're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. It's good news. I, I, God is around me. He surrounds me. He wakes me. He, he cares for me. He loves me. And yet in Psalm 144, he reflects, the psalmist, and this psalm reflects on, on men. He says this, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is a breath. His days are like the passing shadow. So, so he says, God, you're glorious and you're wonderful, but man, man is only a breath. Like the flower of the field, here today, gone tomorrow. So we have joy as we understand the eternal love of God. Let me, let me so the good news, this really good news, see, God being everywhere present, God being all-knowing, God, God forming us in our mother's womb, knowing that we're intricately made is good news. But let me tell you something. The good news of great joy is that this God, in the fullness of time, became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins. That's good news of great joy. The king has come. The one who made the heavens and the earth, who has no beginning and who has no end. It's a wild story. Has come. He's come. Now, I recently watched the movie Downton Abbey. Some of you are Downton Abbey fans. I thought the show, TV show was great, the movie not so great, but the shows were great. I sometimes will meet people who tell me they've never seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy or Downton Abbey, and I grieve for them. I just, I don't understand, I don't understand that. I just, I can't get over that. It's like somebody saying, I'm not going to watch the Fiesta Bowl next Saturday night at 8 o'clock. I don't understand that, you know. Anyway, so Downton Abbey, the movie. The story goes line like this. It's in 1925, let's say. It's a beautiful, beautiful manor in England, castle, whatever it's called. And it's the, the, the King George V and Queen Mary are going to spend the night at Downton Abbey. And everybody is abuzz with excitement. And so, and then the staff hears that the king has his own cooks and his own valet and butler, and they're going to be just kind of pushed to the side. And through a series of happenstances that are adroitly arranged, the king's staff is pushed to the side, and the staff of Downton Abbey cooks the food and serves the king and queen, which is the highlight of their lives. And so they're sitting in this banquet hall, and all is regal and proper, and it's the king and the queen, and you never speak to the king or queen unless they speak to you. You don't do it. You get an audience with the king of three or four or five minutes. You don't just walk up to him and say, hey, king, how are you doing? That's an American thing. You don't do that when there's royalty. Um, anyway, so, so the king and queen are sitting there. It's very proper. And the queen says, this food is different than what we usually do. It's, 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 it's equally as good as what we normally have, but it's different. And there's a man named Mr. Mosley who's a wonderful man. He's one of the servers. And Mr. Mosley forgets himself. He just has an out-of-the-body experience, and he says to the queen, Your Majesty, that is because the food is made by Mrs. Patmore and served by the servants of Downton Abbey. And when he realizes what he's done, you can tell he almost has a nervous breakdown. I just spoke to the queen. I just added the body of the question. And there's dead silence for five seconds in the movie. And then Queen Mary says very graciously, Well, Please tell Mrs. Patmore we like the food. And they break the silence. And, but but you, 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 don't, you don't approach royalty. You don't, you don't do it. By the way, that's the king and queen of 
Elizabeth II. That's her grandparents, her grandparents, just for fun. The Queen of England who's been there for 730 years now on the throne. It's a joke, not really, if you don't know anything about that. So anyway, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, the king has come. The king has come. But the king hasn't come, and he walks out on the palatial edge, and he looks at the adoring masses every other week, and he waves at them, and he goes back in. This king who came, this is wild. This king who came was born in a backwashed, know-nothing village called Bethlehem in a stable to a poor couple in a very difficult circumstance. This king was apprenticed as a carpenter, was rejected by his contemporaries, including his brothers, was snubbed and belittled, grew to be a great itinerant preacher-teacher, was mocked by the, by, by the intelligentsia, was belittled by the religious authorities, was tr they tried to kill him several times. This king did not come to stand in a power. This king lived a life, suffered egregiously for our sins as our substitute, was put to death cruelly in something called a crucifixion, was buried dead, rose victorious over death, ascended into heaven, and he rules there now. This is the king who became a man, and this king loves his people. And if, if you want to have joy in your heart, you think about, you contemplate the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It is absolutely mind-boggling. Secondly, good news of great joy is awakening in our heart as we understand that the Scripture says here that we are, we are sprinkled by His blood. In the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood meant you're, you're, you're cleansed. On the Day of Atonement, they would sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant. They would sprinkle the people. And we are cleansed by the mercy and the goodness and the grandeur and the sacrifice of Christ. It's not what we have done or can do. It's what he's done for us. It's amazing. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all who would trust him. One of my favorite hymns is, goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. It's a celebration of the cross. A celebration of what Christ would do for us on the cross that is fulfilled, is done, is finished once and for all. This is good news of great joy. And I would ask you, if you've never understood that or never embraced that to this Christmas, to embrace the reality of Christ, to understand the greatness of who he is. We have a strong and perfect plea. The sinless Son of God died on the cross for our sins. There is um, something you can YouTube. It's called, it's called car karaoke or something like that. It's very entertaining. There's a man, a British comedian called James Corden, and he, he will ride around town with a very well-known artist, and they will sing songs together, and he'll do one-liners. But I, this stuff, this is really good. Uh, recently he did it with Kanye West. Now, for those of us who are a little bit older, Kanye West is one of the major cultural icons in, in, our, in our nation.
He is universally loved and respected, especially by a certain age group and demographic, and immensely popular. This year, Kanye West came out and said, I have trusted Christ. I love the gospel, and he's releasing music that is really, really good. But in this particular situation, this comedian gets on an airplane, not a car, with Kanye West and about 120 people from a gospel choir. And it is, just Google it. I've seen it three times. It's just, uh, it's just really good. So they get on the plane, and they're starting this give and take back and, back and forth, and they're, they're singing, and Kanye's so good. He says, why do you do it at night, Kanye? He says, well, I go home, put the kids to bed, and read the Bible. You read the Bible for real? He says, yeah, man, every night. God's making himself strong through me. It was really good. But then they're talking, and he said, Kanye, tell me about this faith thing. He says, well, he says, most of my life, I don't life, I've always been a perfectionist. And then I backed up and I thought, that's a bunch of baloney, basically. He said, that, that's ridiculous. There's only one perfect being, and that is a living God. He said, all of us, none of us are perfect. So when I let go of my perfection, I looked to his work. It was really good. And then, then he, James comes back and says, so have you ever had a hamburger at this place? And Kanye says, no. He says, that's pretty close to perfection. But he kind of makes light of it. But he just lays the gospel out. And I thought, what an incredible statement. Nobody can be perfect. Nobody. How are we made right with God? We're sprinkled with the blood. We're sprinkled with the blood. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Thirdly, joy is awakened in our hearts when we understand and rejoice in the fact that, that there is a living hope. A living hope today that's realized partially today, but in fulfillment in the eternity of heaven. So Micah is an Old Testament book, and in Micah, uh, the people of God are going to be judged because of their disobedience generation after generation after generation, but they're going to be restored. But this is the judgment part. In Micah chapter 7, verse 4 and following, says this regarding the leaders of Israel. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. He says, you know, this day has come. He says, don't trust the woman, your wife, that you hold tenderly in your arms. Don't trust your sons. Don't trust your friends because, because there's disobedience and deceit. But then he comes up with this statement. But as for me... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In other words, there's hope. I'm looking to the God who brings hope. In the midst of judgment, there's always hope. And so you look at this First Testament book written to these people who are going to be going into incredible persecution in four years, three to four years, after Rome was burned, and Nero blames the believers. And he says, you've been born again to a blessed hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus out of the dead, you have a life of purpose. There is hope. Years ago, 2004, there was a movie released entitled Up in the Air. 
by one of my favorite, one of my favorite actresses in a guy named George Clooney. It was a comedy, but they had a strong message. Uh, the story goes like this. There's a man named Ryan Bingham whose only goal in life is to hit the plateau of flying in the air for one million miles. That's his whole goal in life. I want to be a million-mile flyer. And so he's a motivational speaker. He goes all over the country, and he, will, he takes a, 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 his ploy is a, a backpack, and he unpacks his backpack, and he says, you need to get rid of these things and these things and these things to have a backpack and let you walk more clearly without a labor. And one of the things that he's jettisoned are relationships. It's very clear. He has an assistant who is brilliantly played, and she, and she says to him at one time, she says, she says, what do you want? What do you want in life? And he's silent, and she says, you don't even know what you want. And so the film goes on, and he hits the one million mile status. And when he clears the one million miles, the captain leaves the cockpit and comes out and visits him, and he says, we appreciate your loyalty. And then he asks him this, so where are you from? And Bingham's reply is, I'm from here, close quote. The hollowness rings in his own ears. I, I have no home. I have no purpose. I have nothing to really live for. And it's, it's a statement about when things lure us, any, any earthly thing, I mean, any earthly thing that lures you in and says this is your ultimate reason for existing will always disappoint. So I always disappoint the gospel of Christ is the gospel of grace. So I was reading recently, and this is a question that somebody wrote. says, do, do we tell ourselves that we are just going in order to guard against the disappointment of never, ever arriving? You just keep on going because we know we'll never arrive. But the good news of the gospel is that we have arrived in the reality of who Christ is for us that there's a hope now and a hope that extends throughout eternity. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to the astonished people who've seen the resurrected Christ, the angel says to them, says, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who is going into heaven is one day going to come back and take you home. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes a passage that is quoted at many, many funerals. He says that, says that the same Jesus who went to heaven is going to come again and take you home. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Understand them. Do them. Walk in the reality. This is, listen, church, this is good news of great joy. We have hope today and a hope that lasts unto eternity throughout eternity. Fourthly, we have an inheritance, according to this passage, that is in, inexhaustible, complete, and full. It never fades away. Recently I was reading about uh, some, this, a phenomenon worldwide, and that is people are saving bank notes. They're getting, they said there's a kind of a not enough $100 bills in America because a lot of people are just saving their bank notes. They're burying them in the backyard. They're putting them in their mattress. They're whatever. And it says that, that we're running low on currency. It's amazing. And talked to tell the story about a man in Europe who had a stove he never used. It's an old antique wood-burning stove. And so he took the equivalent of 750,000 U.S. dollars, 530,000 euros, 
and he lined this wood-burning stove with them. Had a friend to come visit when he wasn't home. You know what happened? His friend said, it's kind of chilly in here. I like wood-burning stoves. Threw some kindling in, struck a match, and the fire was great. It wasn't worth $750,000, but that's what it cost. Boom. When I read that, I thought, what Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt or where well-meaning friends burn it up in a wood-burning stove where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen, everything changes, everything, except our inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, inexhaustible, doesn't fail. That, 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 that is good news of great joy. Things change. So this week, we have a two-year-old grandson that lives locally, two, two and a half almost. And so we kept he and his younger brother overnight, and I got to play, a lot, play with him a lot and laugh and giggle. And this, the two-and-a-half-year-old grandson um, giggles all the time. He just is looking for a reason to giggle. And so the other night, we were playing, and I changed my gait and acted like I was kind of a monster. And, and I changed my voice inflection, you know, and I said, I'm going to get you. And he, then he started giggling. He'd run out of the room and come back in 30 seconds later giggling. And I'd do it again. We almost went on for about 30 minutes. And it was really fun. I mean, it's so much fun. It's just, oh, this is so fun. And, 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 and he thinks right now that that is really cool. Fast forward 10 years. Miss Sam's supposed to pick him up at school. I park the car and I get out and I go into my gate and I've been and said, I'm here to get you, you know, that type of thing. What do you think is cool? No. I'm, come on, it's not a hard question. This is a softball question. No. In fact, when I'm, if the Lord lets me live another 10 years, he'll probably say, Granddad, just park two blocks down. I'll walk out and meet you. Things change. Things change. The only thing that doesn't change, listen to me, listen, is an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. That is so good. See, that is good news of great joy. The, the, the fifth thing is this. First Peter 1 says that, that we are zealously guarded by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So you, you back up and you look at this. But this is really good news, but, but you know, I, I don't know if I can keep going down this track. You know your heart. You know you're weak. You know that you're, you're, you're indecisive. You know you have doubts. But the Bible says here, this is the good. The really, really, really good news is this, is that God is protecting you right now by his power. Right now. He's, he's protecting you, and he's going to bring you home. And, and so you just you go forward with confidence. Those of us who are a little older, on September the 11th, 2001, remember walking around as if we're in a fog. After the Twin Towers came down and the Pentagon was attacked and the plane crashed in Pennsylvania, sat by the TVs, all day, all night. A couple of days after the towers came down, this happened. The president put on a windbreaker and went to ground zero, if you remember it. And I remember sitting there watching the, the president go there and then make a speech and put his arm around the fire chief of 
New York, whose men had suffered so much. And, and the president said something like this. He said, we have heard the voices of the men who did this, and I promise you that soon they will hear our voices as well. And something inside me went, yes, yes. In other words, you have done this, and there is justice that's coming your way. Now, I think about that, and I, when I travel, this may be a totally false hope, <laughs> but when I travel, uh, there's a certain amount of confidence I have because I've got a little thing called a passport. It's blue. It's got my picture in it. And on the back it says, the bearer of this document is protected by the authority and the power of the United States of America. Something like that. I go to a place in Tunisia. We're 30 miles from where I go. 35 European people were murdered on the beach three years ago. And I, I, I may be wrong, but I, th I think if somebody seized me, some jihadist group, even if they killed me, they would pay because I am a citizen of the United States of America. Now, if I had a Lithuanian passport, not to put Lithuania down, or Estonia, or uh, I wouldn't have that confidence. But I'm not here to elevate the United States, but I am here to say this, that that, that confidence when it comes to the living God is multiplied 1,000 times. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, this is amazing, this great God who has no beginning and who has no end, it says he measures the nations as a drop in the bucket. Boom. The Lord looks at the United States of America with all of our might and our wealth and whatever, and he says, it's a drop in the bucket. He says he measures the nations on a scale as if they were fine dust. <sighs> See, that God guards us. Does. And so, so this is good news of great joy. This God guards us. There's a little book written by a Puritan, and it talks about what the Father and the Son and the Spirit do in our salvation. And he's got a section where he talks about the, the, the things that Jesus does that's unique only to Jesus. He says there's three things. Number one, he became a man. Number two, he died as our substitute. And number three, and this I don't think about enough, and he's praying for us in heaven. Now, Romans 8, 33 and 34, Hebrews 7, 25. The living Christ, the resurrected Christ, is praying for his church in heaven. You and me. You and me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can ever say, get out of here. Get out of here. Christ is praying for his people. That gives me incredible confidence. This is good news of great joy. And very quickly, number six, when we have our trials, First Peter says, when trials hit, when hard times hit, and brothers and sisters, they will. They will. For many of you, 2019 has been a very hard year. When trials hit and hard times hit, it says, 
if necessary, if you're grieved by various trials, the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, will be found result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. Good news of great joy. Your suffering, your hardship is never in vain. It results in praise and glory and honor as we walk in the way of Christ now and especially in eternity. It's good news of great joy that the God who watches over us, the God who loves us, is the God who uses our trials and hardships to build us and to advance his kingdom. God never wastes anything. My favorite catechism question, Heidelberg Catechism number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, my only comfort in life and death, both in body and soul, is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he forgives me by his shed blood and so preserves my life that not a hair will fall from my head without his permission. That's, that's good news of great joy. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us were praying earlier this morning, and I prayed for people. In this, some of them are in this room. I said, Lord, I, I pray for a group of people, and it's a group that none of us ever want to be a member of. It's, it's parents who've buried children. And I listed about seven families by name. Some are here right now. But even in the midst of that, the Lord uses brokenness and sorrow in ways that we can't imagine. That's good news of great joy. There's a great God who watches over us and guards us and guides us. So I, I, as I look at this as a mirror, you know, I ask myself, is there an inexpressible joy full of glory in my life, in my soul? I really believe that as you look at the text, if you just let the text speak to you, that, that, that as we understand and contemplate and love and embrace these things, something changes in us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you love him now, you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the Christmas season. I just pray you not let this season run by without us joyfully doing business with you. There are people here today that have been away from you. Um, I, I pray they'd come home. They'd come home. There are, there are people here who do not know you, and they're intrigued by the message of Christmas and the hymns that are sung, and I pray they would see you as glorious God who invaded human history and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. I'm so thankful that you, King Jesus, are not a king who came and stayed in a mansion and occasionally came out and waved to the people, but you were born in a stable, in a tiny nothing town, and you were rejected and reviled and punished and ultimately killed for our sins, executed. But you rose victorious. I pray that that wild and glorious story would work its way into our lives. 
Have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.